Uh, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, this morning we're continuing our series on the book of James. We are on chapter 5. We'll be going through 7 through 11. If you're following uh, in the church's Bible, that's on page 1013. Uh, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Actually, keep your finger there. Turn to the Old Testament, um, Deuteronomy 11. I'll be reading verses 13 through 17. Uh, if you're using the church Bible, that's on page 155. Deuteronomy 11, beginning in verse 13. Uh, beloved people of God, this is, this is God's word. Uh, it's given for our good and for his glory. So give your full attention to it. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Let's turn now to uh, James 5, beginning in verse 7. Uh, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose or the end of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Uh, Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So James has changed his tone completely in our passage. Uh, He just went off on on these rich oppressors. Uh, He accuses them of injustice because they've taken advantage of poor people and they have lived in self-indulgence and luxury. But now in our passage, James wants to comfort and encourage the poor those who have suffered and are suffering injustice. Uh, notice how he identifies himself with them. He calls them brothers. And so he wants us to do the same. 
because we always need to identify with who? With the oppressed, never the oppressors. Uh, why? Because, because that's who God is, right? God's character is to defend the lowly and the mistreated, never those who mistreat people. And so the question is, how do the poor respond to the oppression and injustice of the rich? Uh, uh, there's no doubt our passage is about patience, a kind of patience that perseveres in the midst of injustice and victimization. And so James's answer would be with enduring patience. That's how you respond when you are mistreated. I want us to just simply wrestle with this big idea this morning. And it's this. Don't lose your patience in the midst of injustice and adversity while you wait for the compassion and mercy of the Lord. Don't lose your patience in the midst of injustice and adversity while you wait for the compassion and mercy of the Lord. Uh, James gives us a picture of what this enduring patience looks like from three sources, uh, from the farmer, the prophets, and Job. And, and so that's going to be our outline this morning. We're going to consider uh, the farmer, the prophets, and Job. Uh, James keeps saying, be patient, over and over again in this passage. Uh, why? Because the Lord is coming. You see, for those who are enduring injustice and suffering, the coming of the Lord should be a sense of comfort. Because God is coming to show what? To show compassion and mercy. But for those who live in self-indulgence, those who take advantage of other people, the coming of the Lord should make them anxious. For them, God is coming as the Lord of hosts, the commander of the army of heaven, who will bring judgment to oppressors. And so the, the poor await His return, the rich dread it. And so for James, we are to be patient until the coming of the Lord our patience should be seen in light of what's to come. It has an end in sight. Patience, our patience will pay off when the coming presence of the Lord is with us, when the things we are uh, waiting now are fully realized. Uh, that's the lesson uh, James wants us to learn from the farmer or, or, or the gardener or anyone involved in agriculture. Uh, the thing about them is that they know how to wait. They know how to wait for the harvest to come. They know how to wait uh, for produce and, and fruits. That's James's point when he says the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Verse 7. And so, here's the question. Are farmers and gardeners idle? While they wait, do they just put up their feet and do nothing while they wait for the rain and for the fruits to come? I don't know if we have any farmers here or gardeners. You know that's not the case, right? There's so much upkeep. There's so much repetitive work while they're waiting. Day in and day out, they have to perform back-breaking labor. They plow, they, they sow seeds, they plant, they uproot, they gather. 
and all kinds of other things that I can't think of. Uh, but why is the farmer willing to do all of this? All of this work? Well, it's for the sake of harvest. It's for the sake of seeing fruits, the fruits of his labor, right? Uh, for sure, not, not many of us are called to be actual farmers or, or gardeners. Um, though some of you may be, may be those. Uh, so what kind of work is James really talking about here? Uh, we read from Deuteronomy 11 earlier because I think that's what James has in mind. Uh, that's where we see the, uh, this language of the early and the late rain coming. Um, let me read quickly verses 13 and 14 again for us. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all of your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And so what's the work that God has given us to do in light of, in light of Deuteronomy 11? Well, it's, it's obedience. It's to serve the living God. Which, by the way, in Scripture, serving is the same word as worship, right? It's to love Him with all that we have. That is the greatest commandment. It is our greatest work as human beings. And another is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which James calls the royal law. You see, the daily work of love is baked into waiting. It's baked into to being patient. It's the work God has given us to do while we wait for Him to give us rain. It's going to be hard work. Because it often has to happen in the midst of suffering and injustice, in the midst of drought. Now, now in James's analogy, he's talking about ancient farmers, right? This is old school farming. Uh, remember, ancient people didn't have modern sprinklers to do the job, you know, and other modern irrigation systems. Uh, and so the farmer does all of this work, but he also knows there are some things out of his hands. There are some things out of his control, like the rain. He knows how he desperately needs rain. But no amount of work, no, no amount of work, uh, was going to make it come any faster. The farmer simply has to wait. And so waiting like a farmer means letting go. It means surrendering what we cannot control in our lives. Uh, you see, the farmer teaches us not only to work, but also to be still. To surrender the outcome to God. There are probably some outcomes in your life right now that you need to surrender to God. That you keep trying to mold and shape to your own liking. Give it to God. Give it to God. Stop forcing it. And trust God to give you rain. In His timing and not yours. Uh, waiting is hard, isn't it? I think Tom Petty, uh, that's a musician for all you young folks, uh, uh, was onto something when he said, waiting is the hardest part. That's why James tells us to strengthen or establish our hearts. 
It's when we make a firm decision to be patient, no matter what comes to us, no matter the cost, our hearts will remain committed to waiting on the Lord. I think we all want that, don't we? We want to be patient. We want our hearts to be strong as we wait for God to come. And so how do we strengthen our hearts? How do we patiently endure when it gets really hard? Uh, Let me just be very clear right now. It's impossible to do this on our own. Patience, after all, is a fruit of the Spirit. And so it is ultimately the Spirit's work in us and not ours. But it doesn't mean we don't pursue it. It doesn't mean we don't cultivate it. And so here's what what I think. Uh, I think our hearts are strengthened with the work that we do. The more we do the work of the Lord, of pruning and tilling, the more we obey His commandments and love Him and our neighbors, the more we will find ourselves more committed to waiting on Him. I hope that makes sense. But how do you know when, when we're being impatient? When we just can't wait, right? James says when we grumble. When we start incessantly complaining against other people. Grumbling is a sign that our hearts are not strong enough to wait on the Lord. It's the reason why James warns us not to grumble against each other. But how many of you grumble or or, or groan when you're treated unfairly? When you've been a victim of injustice? How many of you do that? Uh, I think I think it's safe to say that we all do, right? Because what happens when we are deeply wronged by somebody, especially those that we love, right? Well, we groan for things to be made right. Uh, Paul uses this word in Romans 8. Uh, actually, Laura and I uh, read this together in the delivery room uh, before our daughter was born. Uh, this is where Paul, Paul said, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown, there's that word, inwardly as we uh, wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, it's, it's, it's good to groan for the renewal of all things. We groan as we encounter over and over again the brokenness of this world. And so we groan while we wait. So there's actually a kind of, uh, a good kind of groaning. Uh, but there's also a bad kind of groaning. And this is, this is what James is after. And that's when, um, that's when our longing for things to be made right turns to anger and complaint against other people. It's when you take out your frustration on them. It's when you begin to talk down on them. And notice James doesn't shrink back from judgment, even among those he calls brothers. Why? Uh, Because we never have the right to talk down and grumble to anyone, not even those who take advantage of us. Remember, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. You know, let alone our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we can't grumble against our enemies, then we can't grumble against one another. I think this should hit home, right? I mean, 
I don't know about you, but I find it a lot easier to talk down to those who treat me poorly, at least not to their face. Um, it's a lot easier to do it to those who are close to me. Uh, you know, it, it's when you, you are mistreated at work, and you go home, and you take it out on your spouse and your children. That's what that looks like. James says, when we grumble against each other, when we use angry words, the Lord is at the door. That's scary. He just called them brothers. He's at the door, not as a savior, as in Revelation 3, but as a judge. Uh, James is, is actually just circling back to what he said in chapter 4. He said, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. When we grumble, we're taking God's place as judge. Therefore, he'll come to us and remind us who is judge. Not us, him. Uh, I think one of the ways we grumble, and I see this a lot, is by being passive-aggressive. You know what I'm talking about? It's when you say something to someone that seems innocent on the surface, but underneath the surface, we are actually being hostile to them. We are underhandedly, indirectly grumbling against that person. I wonder if you ever had that experience before. Or I wonder if you've ever done that to somebody before. Do you realize how much anxiety and sorrow you're causing to other people when you do that? It's hurtful. Being passive-aggressive is a form of grumbling because uh, we're using words to express, express our complaints and our anger against that person. And James says, the Lord is at the door. Man, I, I, I see it all the time in the church. It's so unhealthy. And we do great damage to people made in God's image when we do that. Okay, so we, we shouldn't be grumbling against one another, not even our enemies. But should, but should we always be silent? I don't think so. I, I think we can protest and denounce sin and injustice without resorting to grumbling. This is why James gives us the, the prophets as examples of patience. Uh, if you read the prophets, my guess is you wouldn't immediately think of patience. I know I don't. Uh, I think of judgment, of course. But they are. For James, the prophets are portraits of long-suffering patience. Uh, take Jeremiah, for example. Uh, not too long ago, we were in the book of Jeremiah, so this might be a little fresh, kind of, in our minds. Uh, think about what happened to him, right? God called him to be a prophet. He didn't want to do it, but he did it. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to marry, right, and, and have children. He was mocked and persecuted by people in, in his own village. Why? Because of his preaching. Nobody liked what he was preaching, then he was beaten and put in jail by a supposed holy person. A, post, a, a person you're supposed to trust, right? A priest. And then he barely gets away uh, from a death sentence. But then he has to go into hiding. Uh, he was called a traitor for announcing God's judgment on Jerusalem. 
And so people threw him in a well. He got rescued, but then people threw him in jail. (laughs) And then eventually, Jeremiah was taken to Egypt against his will. I mean, this is a man who knew what suffering is like, right? But you know, Jeremiah wasn't alone. All the prophets suffered. They were hated by the nations, and they were hated even by their own people. They were alienated, they were mocked, they were shamed. But that's what happens when you resist the powerful, isn't it? When you're challenging the status quo, when you're calling out people's injustice and oppression and sin. But this is who they are. This is their calling. Uh, One scholar said it like this, uh, Obeying God's call, no matter how heavy the burden or how harsh the persecution, is central to the prophetic ethos. And so despite of all this suffering, despite of all these things they had to go through, the prophets endured. They kept speaking God's word. They kept refusing to compromise with the injustice of the world, even at the cost of their dignity, even at the cost of their, uh, their lives, their own lives. They continued to call people to turn from their sins. They continued to speak the truth that the people that the people might embody justice and mercy to one another. You know, victims of injustice, victims of oppression, uh, find it difficult to speak out. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you've experienced that. Uh, because there are consequences. It might mean more persecution and sufferings, more alienation and afflictions. And it might even mean death. But this is part of the reason why God sent the prophets. It was part of their job to speak up for the marginalized and weak, for the poor and mistreated. Their prophetic words were never for themselves. They never spoke for their own comforts and rights. Their words were, the, were for the flourishing of other people, especially for the victimized and abused. You see, that's, that's really what it looks like to speak in the name of the Lord. It's not only to speak the truth of God, it is also to embody the love of God. That's what speaking in the name of the Lord looks like. In a word, it's to speak the truth in love. Do you know what I hear a lot? Not just on the internet, but also uh, in the church. I hear so many people saying hurtful things in the name of truth. I'm just speaking the truth, man. They're just so easily triggered. I'm always, uh, they're always offended. Listen. I don't care how how right you think you are. If your aim isn't to provide hope, repentance, and faith, if you have no compassion, then you aren't actually speaking the truth in love. You're using truth as a weapon. That's not love. That's actually hate. That's just not how the prophets spoke the truth. They wept for people. They weren't trying to win arguments. They were after people's hearts. 
They were longing for their repentance. They were wanting to give the poor hope. I think it takes wisdom to know what to say at certain moments. Right? You know what what moms say? Uh, Don't say anything unless you have something nice to say. Uh, I don't know if many of us have learned that lesson yet. Sometimes the best thing for us to do is just to be silent and listen. We're not very good at listening, are we? A few chapters before, that's what James tells us to do, right? To be quick to listen. We need to learn to wait to say the right thing at the right time. Uh, The truth, the right truth with the right heart. That should be our aim. Not just to speak truth, but to, to do it in, 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 in compassion and mercy and love. And so whenever we are seething with anger, whenever we're super mad at someone, it's never the right time. Wait. Speak truth when you can do it with love. Uh, let me quote an, an old college uh, classmate of mine. Uh, Listen to this. I I think he's spot on and it's so good. He said, you can be exactly right in exactly the wrong way. In an age where the temptation is strong to simply scream the truth and pat ourselves on the back, may we prize patient persuasion and winsomeness. And so find ourselves not merely winning arguments, but winning hearts. Man, that's so good. So good. So good because we can't, we can't separate truth and love. They are inseparable. The moment we want love without truth, we break love. The moment we want truth without love, we break truth. We can't divorce those two things. Uh, so let me, let me, let me talk about James's last example of patience. Job. Uh, now think about what Job had to endure. Uh, he became poorer than a beggar. Uh, remember that he had all the animals he could have wanted, right? He had uh, acres and acres of land. But all of it, uh, all of his possessions were taken away from him. Uh, then he underwent physical sufferings. Uh, he had uh, these horrible skin sores, these nasty boils all over his skin. It's very gross. Uh, on top of that, Job was mocked and reviled. I mean, remember his closest friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar? What kind of advice did they give him? Horrible ones. And what's worse, his own wife gave up on him. What did she say? Do you still hold fast to your in- integrity, Job? Curse God and die. Imagine your wife saying that to you. And worst of all, Job had to endure the death of his own kids. Along with all of his stuff, along with the mockery and, 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 uh, revile, uh, revile things that he was enduring, his beloved children were taken away from him. I can't even imagine that, you know, have a newborn, two-year-old. I can't imagine my children being taken away from me. Life was so unbearable for Job that he wanted to die. 
You ever been at that point before? Job wanted to die. That is suffering. That is suffering. Yet in all of that, in all of that tragedy and downward spiral, Job never gave up. He refused to curse God. He kept believing his allegiance to the God of Israel didn't fail. Against all odds, Job kept hoping. Do you know what kind of heart that is? A heart who, that's willing to, to endure all of those things? That's a strong heart. Job strengthened his heart to wait on the Lord. What kind of heart do you have? And what did Job see when all is said and done? Well, well he saw the end of the Lord. The end or purpose of the Lord. Uh, James says, Job saw God's compassion and mercy. At the end, God met him with restoration and renewal. The end was better than the beginning. God restored in overwhelming abundance to Job. All of Job's waiting wasn't in vain, and neither is yours when you wait on the Lord. Um, there's something about Job I want to highlight real quick uh, because it's such a great source of comfort. So if Job is an example of genuine patience, then it means we can bring all of our complaints to God, doesn't it? Because that's what Job did. We can cry out to God... Lord, why am I suffering? God, how long? God, why are you doing this to me? We don't have to bottle all of our pains up. We can bring it to God. Let me, let me make this very personal for you, or for us, right? As an Asian American in this country right now, you know, I... I feel it. I feel the injustice. I, I feel the hatred. And, and the silence of the church, it hurts. It hurts. But you know what? I can bring all of my pain to God. And I'm sure you have plenty of things in your life that you feel like you've been mistreated on and, and that you need to bring to God. You see, Job teaches us that God gives us permission to protest to Him to express our complaints to Him, because God can take it. And not only can God take it, He can redeem it. The Lord can turn our complaints to greater faith. He can turn our protests into enduring hope. That's what God can do. Uh, you know what's interesting? Uh, James says, we, along with Job, have also seen the purpose or the end of the Lord. We haven't just heard or read about what God did for Job. James says we've seen it. What's he talking about? Jesus, like the farmer, like the prophets, like Job, patiently endured for us. He was silent before his accusers, 
before his own brothers who grumbled against him, he was silent, not a word. Jesus was patient even unto death, death on a cross. He was silent in the grave as well. And on the third day, he saw the end of the Lord. He saw his Father's compassion and mercy. Jesus' enduring patience gave way to resurrection. Beloved, with the eyes of faith, we have seen the compassion and mercy of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the end of the Lord. Jesus embodies the compassion and mercy of God. And so when we look to Him, our waiting, our patience will never be in vain. That's the gospel. Uh, let me close with a few thoughts this morning. What does it look like to wait for the end of the Lord? Well, it doesn't look like inactivity. It looks like doing the hard work of love. Sometimes you need to sow in tears when you're being mistreated, when you're suffering, when people are grumbling against you. Beloved, when it seems unbearable, look to Jesus. Wait for Him, Him who embodied the compassion and mercy of the Lord. He will strengthen your heart. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews uh, puts it like this, Consider Him who endured from, uh, from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Good stuff, right? Waiting for the Lord, waiting for the end of the Lord is also an exercise in trust. So it also looks like letting go of the things that you keep trying to control. So what do you keep trying to hold on to? What do you keep trying to control? You can do all the rain dance that you want, but you can't make it rain. Surrender the outcome and your future to God. Trust that He will give you rain in His perfect timing. Trust that He will never leave you hungry. There's a harvest coming. And so God has given us this meal as we are waiting for His coming. As we wait for the final harvest, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. He did the hard work of love. He gave us, he gave us Himself. He loved us to the very end, John says. Jesus gave His life that we might be the first fruits of creation. And you know, part of what that means is waiting for one another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he said, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. You know, physically, do we do that every week? Yeah, we do, right? Uh, our elders serve uh, the bread and the wine, and we all wait until everyone is served and, and is ready to eat and drink, and then we, we eat and drink together. Uh, but is that Paul's point? Is that really it? Is it just procedure? No. Right? Uh, I think waiting for each other means a lot more than that. Waiting for each other is a symbolic act. It's meant to be a picture of our love for one another because of God's love for us. It's a picture of, of our compassion and mercy 
It's a picture of compassion and mercy being lived out in the body of Jesus. It's a picture of what it looks like to wait for the end of the Lord. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we long for your coming. Our hearts are restless until the renewal of all things, when the entire world is governed by your compassion and mercy, until all that is wrong in this life is made right. O Lord, take our hearts and fix them to the end that we might love each other as Christ has loved us. Help us to feel deep compassion for the marginalized and advocate for the exploited. May we reflect the end of the Lord, compassion and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.